You're listening to the Two Bucks Podcast, the podcast for outdoor entrepreneurs. Little by little, I was getting the sense of my time isn't my time. Just kept feeling this pull to the outdoors and wanting to do something in the outdoor space. Welcome to another episode of the Two Bucks Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Krebs, and I'm sitting down today with Elijah Stewart. He is the founder and, and I would say owner-operator of the West Kentucky Buck Company, a whitetail outfitting business. And no, it is not a high-fence whitetail outfitting business, as, we've, as we know none of you like. This is 100% free-range whitetails in Kentucky. That's right, Elijah? Yes, sir. Yep. Does that, that's got to be, you know, it's the better way to do it. You and I are on the same page, but that does have to be a little frustrating when, you know, you're, you're trying to run a business, you got lease ground and that deer jumps across the fence and gets hit by a car or something. Yeah. Uh, hunting a deer all year just to get run over. That is, uh, that is the worst, you know, it's definitely, you get kind of frustrated when you've been hunting it and then. You know, some random guy just happens to kill it a couple farms over, but uh, getting hit by a car has definitely got to be the, the worst. Uh, yeah, that's the one I'm always most concerned about. Both of our farms um, back home are on, you know, decent-sized highways, right? And so, like, 60-mile-an-hour highways. And so I'm always worried, like, our big bucks, especially when they're on that side of the farm, I'm like, oh, don't cross the road. Luckily, there's not really a good reason for them to cross the road in either one. But, yeah, when they get hit by a car, that's, like, the worst because then none of the hunters get to enjoy them. But, it, you, like you said, it still sucks when they get shot by a different hunter. I mean, to each their own, that hunter did good, right? He's got every right to be out there, but it's still kind of hard to run a business when you're when people are coming in basically, you know, it would be the same as somebody coming in the back door and taking out product of your warehouse in, in a way, right? I mean, it's it's yep and that's just that's just part of it you know deer's gonna especially during the rut they probably get killed you know five miles down the road that's just uh, yeah just how it goes i wanted to start a couple t-shirts that said free range whitetail rancher so you know and then it would be a picture of like a big buck jumping a fence yeah, yeah probably sell a bunch of those. Because <laughs> that's what I feel like sometimes we're doing is like putting food plots out, feeding these things, improving habitat, taking care of them just for the neighbor to shoot them some years. So, um, so it's it's a challenge, right? I but how long have you been doing it? Let's start there. When did you get the idea for the West Kentucky Buck Company and to be a whitetail outfitter? And how long have you been up and running? So, I was a kid. I don't know how old I would have been but uh I remember watching tv and you've seen all the guided hunts and outfitters and I remember telling dad that's what I wanted to do and you know you're a kid and everybody just brushes it off like yeah okay or whatever and then you go through school and they have you take those uh placement tests or whatever where they tell you what you're best suited for and you know they cram going to college down your throat and all that and I've did go to community college for two years. There was a program that allowed you uh, two years free at community if you uh, kept a certain GPA and attendance. You know, any anybody could have done it there. But so anyways, I did that and worked a full-time job for a tobacco farmer here. And uh, we raised uh, corn and, bean and beans and wheat too. And uh, after I got through with college, I can't remember if it was next fall or it may have been while i was still in school but uh uh, got an opportunity to lease a farm and uh, started from there i think that was 2012 or 2013 but then in uh, 2016 i guess you could say well i ain't gonna say i had it figured out but i bought a lodge and i had i don't know about a thousand acres rented and uh started started from there and then uh so we've been going strong ever since but so you've been doing this uh, better part of a decade really yeah pretty close pretty close it uh i just turned uh 30 in march and it uh kind of weird when you 
talk about something that happened 20 years ago and you can remember it, you know, <laughs> but, uh, um, the, uh, the first, let me think the, uh, I remember the first clients we ever had, it was two guys, uh, two guys from Michigan and, uh, uh they actually had hunted the farm that I had rented probably 20 years prior to that with another another outfitter so that was that was that was kind of funny but uh, the once I got the lodge going and everything the first deer big deer we killed that year was a uh, 152 inch eight pointer it's one of the bigger eight pointers that we've that we killed but uh, we killed a uh, 207 inch deer the next year and that's kind of what jump started us into being able to to uh, get started good booking hunters so that that was a hard part. killing deer is the easy part booking hunters was the was the hard part to figure out well that's it <clears throat> that eight pointer is nothing to shake a stick at either because we a couple years ago we shot a 149 eight pointer on our farm and that's a huge eight pointer i mean people i it, think it takes it takes a lot for eight point to get to 130 inches, much less 140. Yeah, I think a lot of people, I don't know, I don't want to offend everyone that's listening, but I think a lot of people have their numbers a little off in their head, right? I think a lot of people say, oh, I want a 150, I want a 160. Well, I don't think they're as common as, as a guy thinks. You know, you watch the Outdoor <laughs> Channel and they're everywhere. Right, or you see the Drury's and they got six of them in one field late season, but for an average guy, like a one twenty five is a pretty big buck, you know, just statistically speaking across all the bucks on your farm, maybe ten percent of them are one twenty five and bigger, right, which is usually like two you know it's not like there's one fifties one sixties everywhere, and then to do it like you said as an eight pointer. It's one thing to have 150-inch 10-pointer. That's still a toad. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you take two tines off. Every tine's got to grow another two, three inches to make up for it. Yeah, that's crazy. Then I was going to lead with, so that's one thing. And then a 207, that is huge. I didn't know that Kentucky, for some reason, I was not thinking Kentucky was like a mega giant state, like Iowa, Illinois, Kansas, I, like if you told me, like if you had to give me a list of states, like five states that I would rank in terms of chances to shoot a two hundred, I would be honest. Kentucky wouldn't even be in my pick. Am I like, am I just sleeping under a rock or something? Well, we at expos and stuff, we get a lot of guys that they're like, well, Kentucky's kind of a sleeper state, and I'm like, well, to everybody, every state to the south of us, it's not for sure because it uh, there's uh, more ground being leased now and more people in here hunting than it than it ever has but uh, we would we would have let's see how would you word this we we do kill plenty of boone and crockett deer and plenty of deer over 200 inches of the state but what keeps us from being on the iowa and illinois level is uh our rifle season falls dead smack in the middle of the rut mm, same there uh, if uh, if it you know, was pushed back two weeks or even changed it to shotgun, it would make a lot of difference. So when I think of Kentucky, I think you're starting to get into some pretty gnarly, like mountain country, like Appalachians. Is that true? Or is it? The, part? So where we're at, uh, we got plenty of uh, rolling hills and hollers and lots of farm ground. And uh, there's some stuff that's a whole lot steeper than others right here in Christian County where we're at. It's a, uh, predominantly farm ground. Uh, now the North end of the County that we're on, you get into, uh, into big, bigger patches of woods. Uh, you get, uh, two and a half hours East of here and then it's, uh, smaller fields and then kind of starts into the end of the mountains. But, okay. So are the, is the the prime whitetail where you're seeing these big bucks? It's it's in that type of land where it's rolling hills, fields, and draws. We I call them draws because I used to live in North Dakota. <laughs> Everyone out where you're from calls them hollers, but uh, that's like ideal whitetail habitat. And that's I guess that's starting to make more sense to me because I was picturing you guys growing these 158 pointers and 207 inch bucks in the mountain 
part of Kentucky, like where the elk are. And that wasn't making sense to me because it just doesn't seem like there's enough food, right? Enough nutrition in the ground in that mountain area. They, they do kill uh, big deer over there too, but uh, I would say that there's less of them just because, you know, deer populations are a little bit less because they don't, like you said, don't have as much to eat. So Interesting. Yeah, it sounds like Kentucky really is a sleeper state. I mean, so we're, I live in Minnesota, and a big thing up north is eel pout. I don't know if you've ever seen an eel pout. It's a fish, a real slimy bottom feeder yeah. fish. Some mm-hmm. people call them a burbot. Yep. And everyone that catches them and fishes for them says it's poor man's lobster. I It sounds like we're, Kentucky's, I don't want to say poor man's Iowa, but maybe like the the hidden, like the hidden Iowa or the, you know, there's somebody that wants to go to Iowa but can't wait or doesn't want to wait for all the points or doesn't want to, you know, pay ridiculous outfitter fees now. It's like Kentucky's a solid option, it sounds like. I mean, got everything. Yeah, it, you know, about as, about as close as it gets without having to go draw a tag. Right, which is a big deal. If you're doing an outfitted hunt, I mean, sometimes – you know, you do, like, big outfitted hunts. Like, I want to go shoot a Yukon moose one day. Like, that's something I'm going to have to plan out multiple years because there's no other way to do it. Mm-hmm. But right. sometimes you're just like, dude, I got a really nice bonus at work. I want to go shoot a whitetail in a different state. And then you're – but then if you're doing that, you're stuck with over-the-counter. You know, you can't do Iowa because you got you got a draw tag, and it takes a couple years. Yeah, yeah. So. That was uh, – that – I was uh, at the sportsman show in Harrisburg, I guess it'd been two years ago, and uh, some buddies that outfit in Newfoundland for moose, they said that they had had an opening, and it's like during the rut, and I was sitting there, and I thought, man, I don't need to spend that kind of money, but then I got to thinking about all the old guys here, I know they're, you know, they all say, oh, I wish I would have went elk hunting, or I wish I would have went moose hunting, or whatever, and I thought, to heck with it, I'm going to do it, so that's what I'm doing this uh first week of october this fall just going moose hunting in newfoundland so. Ooh, that'll be fun that'll be fun and at least it's like you know first weekend of october i don't know when your season opens i assume it opens by october 1st but it's not like there's anything too wild going on yet in in the whitetail world right i mean yeah you well, can get some our- early season patterning which is nice but people really want that last two weeks of october first two weeks of november i'm sure well, our season actually opens the first Saturday in September, so the velvet hunt is a real big deal okay. around here. Um, uh, that 207 we killed, it was in it was in velvet, and then uh, we've killed. Well, the majority of our biggest deer we have killed on the on the velvet hunt. We killed a 183 last year was our biggest one. How how many inches do you think that velvet adds on a 207 inch deer? Do you think do you think the velvet is what got it over 207 gross? Like, is there seven inches no, of velvet? His, uh, it, it depends on how close to how close to shedding their velvet. Uh, so, you know, if you kill one that's still, like, bulbed out at the end, you know, that could add probably 10 inches, you know, just depending on how many or how long his main beams and tines are. But uh, this steer was all but fixing to uh shed his velvet so it was just as tight as it got it might add you know four or five inches maybe but uh, that 183 we killed last year he had he shed his velvet the uh evening i had a cell camera and i could tell he was starting to shed his velvet i could see blood showing through the friday evening and then by saturday evening he was his uh, antlers were still pink from the blood where he had just shed well that's cool i wonder if a taxidermist can keep that you know, that pink look, that blood fresh shed look when they mount it, if the hunter wants that. I ha- I think I've seen one mount that looked awful pink, but uh, we were looking at it and uh, we thought, well, this is, you know, antlers are going to be ugly looking here on a, on a mount, but they dried on out over the rest of the hunt there, the two or three days we had it in the walking cooler, and they were pretty much white. But, oh shoot uh, yeah that's tough when you guys get the velvet bucks do you just try to get them to a taxidermist as fast as possible do you use that velvet lock product like how does how do you keep that velvet looking good for your so, clients 
last year was the first year I'd seen the Velvelock and uh, uh, a, one guy killed a deer and his son put the Velvelock on it and he just actually sent me a picture of the uh, finished mount the other day and uh, it it took it looked looked pretty good but um, we either try to get them in a well yeah we try to get them in a freezer as quick as we can because okay. our taxidermist here he has the uh, velvet uh, freeze dried is what he does so awesome awesome I want to jump back quick so you said in 2016 you picked up a lodge on or is that I thought you said 2016, but when you picked up the lodge. Uh, I think, yeah, I think I actually bought it in 2015. I think I did buy it before the first of the year, but um, it was, uh, well, that's actually where I'm at right now. I live here too, but um, it was uh, called the Midway Truck Stop. It was midway between Chicago and Atlanta on Highway 41 before they put in the interstate, and so it used to be uh a, a big truck stop there was a truck line that would uh they would both take off from chicago and atlanta get here swap trailers and then go back Interesting. but it was also a uh when i was a kid it was a restaurant too but it's uh, been remodeled now so oh so that's what i was going to ask because it seems like if someone wanted to start an outfitting business to buy a lodge is a huge financial investment so, i was going to ask is it is it kind of dual purpose like you bought a house that part of the house is set up for clients and it's got the social area and bunk rooms, but it's also like your house. So it's not like you're paying your own personal home mortgage and a lodge mortgage at the same time. Right. If I had it to do over again, I would, uh, I would probably have rented a, a place to lodge people for the first few years. Anyways, um, just, uh, you know, that way you could have your own house and own deal separate from from uh, from your hunters and all. It's kind of hard to uh, have a family and whatnot, you know, in inside a hunting lodge at the same time. Yeah, I could see that. I I've been going to a lodge in South Dakota for shed hunting um, for seven years, eight years. I didn't go this year because we went to New Mexico looking for elk antlers instead. But the lodge in South Dakota had it's a write-off business for an enormous farmer the farm the the two brothers or three brothers farm like a hundred thousand acres between montana and south dakota and they wanted to do a write-off pheasant lodge business so as you can tell they started with a completely different set of operating rules than i've ever had with funding and budget and, mm-hmm. and so this place is top notch i mean it's the kind of place people fly in doctors and lawyers from the east fly into mitchell buy a shotgun go pheasant hunting for three days give the shotgun to the guide and fly home, right? It's That's the clientele. <laughs> but what they did was they built the lodge in the best, you know, scenic view, parking lot and everything, but then they built their house down the bluff a quarter mile. And so the the host couple, the couple that runs the lodge for these farmers, they live in that house a quarter mile away. So they're there. They, they can come up to the lodge anytime there's an issue. And then they have cabins. They're duels. You know, it's like, you walk up the steps, there's a door on the left and a door on the right. There's two units in each cabin. And so everyone's kind of got their own space. And it, it seems to work out, like you said, and, and what you're talking about with, like, it's kind of hard not to bring work home with you when work is in your home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. It, and it's pretty much a, you know, especially come November, it's a, it's a 20-hour-a-day job anyway. So it's uh, it makes it easy for getting up in the mornings if you get too tired you just sleep on the couch that way when your hunters get up they wake you up too so <laughs> I, 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 t- I tell all my hunters once they get here you know don't be afraid to come in there and wake me up because i have been subject to not to hear seven or eight ten alarms going off for 45 minutes too so and then so let's let's get into maybe a little bit more of like the day-to-day of a of a white fill, whitetail outfitter. So let's start with the season we're in right now. I would say, unless Kentucky's a lot different than Minnesota, things are starting to green up. Maybe you've been in spring for a month already. But you're probably starting to put out cameras. I don't know if you're planting food plots or there's just, you know, rented egg on the lease. 
but you're starting to put in this food starting to grow deer are starting to grow their antlers you're getting ready for another season really right it's starting putting on stands or changing stands doing all that summer work to get ready for another fall of hunting so what's like the average day look like for you throughout the summer so this time of year we don't really don't really do much we do have cameras out over our mineral lakes for the most part uh a lot of our deer ain't much to look at right now um you know we'll have a deer or two that by july the fourth is worth looking at um but not not many it's usually on towards the end of july before you can tell much about them um most of our farms uh have so much uh, like you said rented crop ground on them there's really not that many places for food plots um so most of the time when we do plant food plots it's usually just clover so we'll have to go bush all get knock the tops out of it every once in a while but uh, uh and as far as stands and stuff i don't i don't know we always kind of did it different than a lot of people especially for the velvet hunt it's got to be so precise you can't just you know, hang a stand and say, well, this looks like a good one, good spot where you could kill one. Uh, so we wait till closer to, uh, closer to season to do that. And then like our, uh, Halloween and first of November bow hunts, a lot of times we've found the deer, hung the stand and then killed the deer within 24 hours. I would say that that happens on probably better than 50% of the deer that we kill with a bow in those two weeks there. Okay. Um, so you're not rifles. Yeah, sending people to like a hut that's been there for 20 years for bow hunters. Right, right. And then the the rifle hunts, it's, of course, you know, you got a rifle in your hand, you can shoot 300 yards. It's, you know, kind of easy as far as, uh, you know, years, farms you've had for several years, you can you know, get your platforms set and leave them there. But, uh, yeah, the, looking uh, over a cut cornfield middle of the mm-hmm. rut with a rifle, man, that would be, we're in shotgun zone. So we're li- same, same rules, but I can really only touch out to, you know, 150 is my absolute max. And it's not for like accuracy. My shotgun can do like a two inch group at 150, which is phenomenal. It's just, it runs out of energy. It, I, I, the drop starts to get so big and the energy starts to die off so much. I don't feel comfortable shooting farther than that right now. I've done three, four inch groups at 200 on paper just to see what happens to see if mm-hmm. those slugs start tumbling. But you know, which is kind of silly because like when that law was made, rifles probably weren't that much better than my shotgun. Now. I mean, it's got a rifled barrel. I got a, a cantilever mounted scope drilled right to the barrel. You know, I'm shooting slugs that are, 16 17 1800 feet per second 450 grain bullet flying that fast i mean it's basically a rifle so but i still can't shoot them when i've seen them out there i've had a couple deer out at like two three hundred yards that i'd love to have been able to to shoot which is a chip shot with a rifle like you said got a lot of walk can uh can y'all shoot a muzzleloader during the shotgun season we can and that's one option it's just like that's a it's it's a it's a weird decision, right? Because with my shotgun, it's a semi-auto with four shells, which I've used that second and third shell every now and then to put an extra hole in a deer. But then I'm tied to 100, 150 yards. I could do the muzzle loader, and I know there's some really good muzzle loaders out there that are touching, you know, three, four hundred yards. But you're tied to one shot. You can't see much after you shoot it because you got all the black smoke in front of the scope. And every now and then, those suckers don't go off for whatever reason. I know there's a lot you can do to help, you know, keep the powder dry, all that stuff, keep them clean. But, you know, no matter how good you are, every now and then they don't go off. And that would, I just don't know if I can handle that, that stomach, that feeling if I uh, had, a, you know, my hit lister and, and my muzzle loader didn't go off. Right, right. But I have thought about that. So, um Another thing I wanted to ask you, so you said you're, you're, you're dealing with about 1,000 acres of land. Well, we that was when first started. We've got uh, a little over 4,500 right now. Oh, wow. That's a lot of land. I mean, that's a lot of ground. I'm sure most, like, is it like 50-50 egg and, and woods or egg and habitat? 
Yeah, just about. But we've got uh, probably not 30 farms, but over 25. And uh, some of those farms will be almost all woods, and some of them will be almost all field. And then, of course, you got some that are pretty well even split. But okay, if uh, if I could hand pick. Uh, every single acre I had, I would have all 100 acre farms or, or less. Uh, the uh, bigger farms, you, uh, you're you hunting the same amount of deer or almost the exact same deer on a 100 acre farm as you are a 500 acre farm. Because, so, are you saying because these bigger farms are usually more eggs, so like the, the habitat's yeah. about the same size? Yeah, and, you know... Uh, like where we killed that 183 last year, that on that side of the road, I think it's like 320 acres, and uh, it's uh, got about 25 acres of woods, and then the rest of it's field. So okay, um, it, yeah, I've heard. I think it's the Raised Hunting podcast guys talk about that exact same thing, where they basically said. If you don't have enough continuous land to actually control your population, meaning, like, if you don't have that 4,500 acres in one block where you can actually grow a buck and pass him and he'll likely be there the next year because he's not getting shot by the neighbors, which takes an incredible amount of land. I don't even know if 4,500 is enough to be confident, but it helps. He's like, if us, you're talking a parcel that size, I would rather have 20... 40-acre farms than, like, one 800-acre farm because then I can just move to whichever farm has that, like you said, 183 this year or a 207 this year. But that 800-acre piece, he's going to have a mature buck every year, but it might not be a special buck every year. And like you said, it's you're dealing with one set of genetics, one herd. You're subject to, you know, one of everything, whereas I have 20 of these smaller farms spread out over a county or two. I'm probably going to have a special buck on at least one of those farms every year. For sure. For sure. And, you know, of course, I've got to look at it from a business standpoint, too. And it seems like the bigger the bigger farms, once you get up over 300 acres, and, like, I got some 300-acre farms that, you know, they'll have a good deer every once in a while. But uh, from a money-making money standpoint, you're better off with, you know, 100-acre farms or less, I think. Yeah, uh, interesting. We uh, we spread. Uh, I know some other outfitters. They, you know, and we do things a little bit different than a lot of people. We um, have most of our guys do their own driving back and forth, kind of like a semi-guided deal. And you know, we have everything ready for you, but uh, we can spread out a whole lot more. And I think that increases our odds instead of a guide putting three or four people in a truck with him. And then they're limited to hunting wherever that guide can get them out in a timely fashion, you know. So there may be two or three of them hunting the same farm. Yeah. I, I, I can put myself in the shoes of the hunter, and I would feel much better knowing I'm the only guy on this farm or me and my brother are the only two on this 100-acre farm than a 400-acre farm, but there's four random, like me and three random guys hunting it because that's, like you said, where the guide had time. Because it's not like he's going to wake up at midnight and drop the first guy off at 1 a.m. so he can get the last guy to his stand by 5 a.m. Right. You know. Right. And so. And, that, yeah, that, and that's another reason we let them do their own driving back and forth is, you know, if they get ready to get down, they can get down and go to the truck right then and ain't got to stand there 20 minutes after dark and, you know, that, that, that type of deal. Yeah. So where I wanted to go with asking about the thousand acres, now it's 4,500 acres is, do you have a limit for how many people you would have in camp at one time and how many people like throughout the season can you, can, can the West Kentucky buck company handle and still maintain whatever your guys' habitat and herd management goals are? Like, do you have like, are, are you at a point where you could handle more? because you got the ground for it, or do you have to, like, book out slots and say, nope, we're booked up for the 2023 season. We can't take any more people. So we do the bulk of our hunting uh, in November, and uh, we will take uh, about – it just depends on year to year, depending on what farms we have. 
like this year, I think we'll have probably 40 rifle hunters, but we're also going to have uh, another thousand acres uh, to rifle hunt on in uh, in November too. So, and then we'll have uh, we've got two two places of lodging this year, or what we had last year, and then this year I think we'll have uh, three places to lodge people. So. Uh, uh, we, I don't know, we try not to shoot little deer. Of course, it happens just because, you know, like one guy comes to mind, he's had 160-something inch deer just at, you know, 50, 60 yards. And then the next year, he had a nice wide 10-point come chasing it all by him, and he got excited, thought it was bigger, and, you know, it was 120-inch deer. But it, it, I think as long as you're – killing mature deer and you know not not shooting all your two and a half and three and a half year old deer uh, then you know you're you're not hurting nothing that way uh, yeah and like i said we'll kill a few small deer a year it happens but uh, for the most part they're all they're all mature deer i suppose it's kind of it puts you in a difficult place because obviously you would say yeah i want only four and a half or five and a half year old buck shot that's the best for the herd and the herd management. But then a hunter, you know, like he says, gets excited, shoots a 125, or he comes hunting, and 125 is the biggest buck he's ever seen by 15, 20 inches. So he thinks it's a yeah. toad and shoots it. And you're like, I I wish you would have shot a four-year-old, but also you paid to be here, you paid to come hunt, you shot a deer. It's like, it, I feel like that probably puts you in a bad spot because you got to be happy for him because he did pay to come hunt. And yep. there really isn't any laws against shooting a two-year-old, and that might be the biggest buck he's ever shot. So you don't want to, like, obviously you're running a business, so you can't give him crap about it like you could if it was your buddy or your brother. But it's, I feel like that's got to be, that's got to put you in a tough spot sometimes, doesn't it? Yeah, we run mainly off of repeat business. So, like, there's guys that started with us. Well, I would, I would say the majority of the guys that started with us still hunt with us today, I can think of. Uh, one group from Alabama, they didn't come last year. I don't think they're coming this year. Well, I know they're not coming this year, but, uh, and then maybe one other guy, but the rest of them that started with us still hunt with us today. But like some of those guys, when they first got here, they seen 110 inch deer and that was the biggest deer they'd ever seen. You know, we get a lot of guys from the Northeast and, uh, you know, they, those first few years, they let her rip there, but, uh, <laughs> the you know they kept coming kept coming back to us and then you know they started holding out and uh, not necessarily just holding out you got a better idea of what 120 or 140 inch deer look like you know it's just uh, yeah a, a learning curve for a lot of guys to well i've with. i've been there i mean the first years we started running cameras i think those old trail cameras had a defect in the software that made every buck look about 20 inches bigger than it really was yeah. we'd get 20 we'd get this one buck in particular was a 10 pointer and we're like man that's a big buck that's got to be a 140 he looks wide he's got it all well sure enough we shot him that year he turned out to be like a 123 10 pointer and we're like ooh, we got to readjust our foundation here on, on these trail camera pictures what what I like is when somebody takes a picture of your trail camera picture on the computer screen and they hold it and then tilt it and then you know you can make a hundred inch deer look like he's one forty you know but that uh, yeah kind of kind of the same deal especially the nighttime pictures they always make them look bigger yeah velvet that adds a lot on the pictures for sure because you think it's all mass and yeah it gets mm -hmm. tricky it gets tricky for sure but uh so if you got forty people in a month. I mean, just doing the simple math, that means basically 10 people in camp a week. Is Well, we, uh, so our rifle season is uh, 16 days, and uh, we'll hunt the first five days. We skip a full day and then hunt the next five, and then we're, then we're done. We, uh, we will have some people come in that Thanksgiving weekend, uh, the last weekend, and that's, sometimes that's a really, really good hunt, too. Um, but for the most part, uh, you know, no people's got obligations for Thanksgiving. So we, uh, we just hunt the first two weeks. There. So for the majority, so we'll hunt, uh, so, so we'll hunt uh, less than 10 bow hunters the first week of November. And then 
the other 30 or so will be, you know, the, the first two weeks of rifle. Okay, so you're so you're talking more like 15 people in those a, a week for those two weeks. 15 people in camp for that yeah. first five yeah. day. I'm wondering, that's starting to sound like logistics are the hardest thing, like getting everyone food, getting everyone the what they need, and feeding them, and housing them, and and making sure everyone knows where they're going. Are you bringing in like seasonal help to just help manage the lodge, cook the food? Because like you can't be yeah, the one yeah, cooking my- if you're out there blood tracking. Yeah, my my mom and my aunt and my grandma and uh, my my mom does most of the cooking and then my aunt uh, the second place we had uh, people staying last year she ran it and then my grandma she'll you know fix f- fix stuff and send up here and stuff like that and uh, I had a I had a guy one year. He said he called me for his hunt and he said, "Well, what's your mama cooking next week?" And I said, "Well, I said mom's gonna be in Florida on on uh, fall break. He said, what, what do you mean? I said, yeah, she's going to be in Florida. He said, well, I ain't coming. <laughs> and so he, so he waited until she got, uh, she got back before he, before he came on his hunt. But is that how good he, your mom's uh, cooking is or how bad you are at cooking? Well, I didn't, I didn't get to be 260 pounds for nothing. And, uh, mom was a school teacher too. So I, I learned how to, learned how to, to cook too. Cause, uh, you know, she was she was at work a lot during the during the summers and stuff. But uh, it, the food the food is a big deal. Uh, and, you know, my mom and aunt and grandma they work they work hard doing that, and I'm just glad uh, I don't uh, I don't have to do it. Uh, there, let's see. Not last year, but the year before, mom got COVID the first week uh, for a velvet hunt, and so I had to do a lot of the cooking too. And then there was a couple weekends there where she was in the hospital cause her platelet levels were low and, uh, having to guide and cook and do all of it. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty rough, you know? Um, but food is the one thing that you can control. You can't control the way the deer move, but you can't control how good the food is. Yeah. And I'm guessing, so, we talked about like what you're doing in the summer. It sounds like you're just kind of making sure which farms you got lined up, maybe starting to put cameras out as we get later into the summer and starting to make a hit list. Let's get into like in season. What's like a daily routine look like for you when you got a full camp? So when the, when you've actually got hunters for, let's say the Halloween and the first week of November bow hunt, you're that that's probably the busiest time because you're uh, running around checking cameras, trying to find uh, deer that have just showed up um, and hanging stands and, you know, getting the bow hunters lined out, but you're also having to do stuff to get ready for rifle season too. Now once rifle season gets here, we're tracking deer, skinning deer, dragging deer. And then, you know, we may have to move a stand or two every once in a while. But uh, uh, the before rifle season, that's definitely the busiest time. We are allowed to uh, feed here, so we do feed a lot of corn. And uh, some people don't. Well, I'm not hunting over a bait pile or whatever. Well, that's fine. Uh, they, you know, that's just something we need to know ahead of time. But I can only think of like three or four bucks we've ever killed that were actually killed in a in a corn pile. Uh, it's mainly I like feeding just to keeps the does coming in and then, you know, lets you keep an inventory on what you got, you know, uh, better pictures and all. Um, but, uh, there's a lot of days we'll drive well over a hundred miles, probably 200 miles in a day running around checking cameras and stuff. But, uh, okay. So you're, you know, you get up, you get the hunters out the door, make sure everyone knows where they're going answering any last minute questions once they're out, right, it's, you know, it's dawn, right? The sun's coming up. All the hunters are in their stands. You're probably still at the lodge. All of a sudden, you, like, put your work boots on, and you're out the door for the day as well. You're not at the lodge getting well, things ready. I usually I usually drop somebody off every day, even though we have most of our guys do their own driving. There's just some places where it's uh, necessary that we drive them to the stand to let them out versus letting them walk in or it's 
you know, way too far to walk or something. But I, I usually pull up to the edge of a field somewhere and uh, just sit there and, and watch and see what comes out. You know, it's like having another hunter in the stand pretty much to get the yeah. um, in, intel on what the deer's doing. Um, okay. So then midday you're but, running around checking cards, putting out corn doing moving a stand if a stand needs to be moved is there a point in the day though where you kind of get all that done and you get to like get back to the camp and take a quick nap before or does that not work because anyone could come home at any time the 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 best sleep you'll ever get is after about 25 days of getting up on three hours of sleep and then you come back and and go to sleep but as soon as you do that somebody will call and say they killed one which is good but uh that uh, that does always ruin a ruin the best sleep you've ever had. But um, <laughs> there's and uh, there's uh, there's always something <clears throat> that happens every day. It, you know, as far as uh, somebody's on a place and there's dogs running deer, or uh, somebody even though you showed them the day before and got got it marked in there real good they can't find their stand or um somebody forgot something so it that the good old nap it uh, it doesn't happen very often you normally you got to you got to go run back and do something yeah are uh, you right before daylight are you cooking all three meals for your guests so like basically cook them breakfast send them with a sandwich for lunch and then cook dinner when they get back or what's the no deal? so uh, breakfast is just, uh, you know, cereal, honey buns, heat up a sausage biscuit kind of deal. Okay. All uh, prepared stuff. A lot of guys. Yeah. Yeah. And then if, uh, of course the velvet hunt, we just hunt in the evenings. So we do cook breakfast then, but like, uh, October through November there, uh, if you hunt all day, we'll send a sandwich or something with you. If not, we'll have something hot at lunch. And then we always have a big supper at night. Okay. And I'm assuming like the crock pots and the roasters are your best friend there. Cause you're trying to feed this many people. It's not like you're cooking like in like, you know what? I don't know what it'd be like. Well, I suppose there's a couple things like burgers are easy to do on a big grill, but. Well, we, we cook a lot of stuff in the crock pot for lunch and then, uh, just not everything, but we grill a lot, pork chops, chicken quarters. Uh, we'll always have some backstrap or, some grilled turkey or something like that and then uh lasagna one night and mom pretty pretty well sticks to a uh, set menu for every every week makes it makes it easier on her end for uh ordering groceries i suppose it makes it easier for her end and it also like that's probably when you get into the season like the days probably just start to blur and so you're like, oh, it must be Friday because mom's making lasagna tonight. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. The the first night everybody gets here, it's always uh, uh, barbecue, and we pick that up from a place in town. It's uh, it's uh, it's about the best barbecue you can get. Yeah. So I got I got a question that's probably going to be like the hardest question to answer. So you got. 15 people in camp for rifle season. You got how many, do you know how many different farms it is? Is it like 20 different farms? Last year, I think we were 26 or seven, I believe. Okay, perfect. So so you got, let's just say 30. This this year, yeah, say 30. So every, so like everyone can easily get their own farm. And obviously, you've been doing this a long time. You have an idea of what bucks made it from last year, what big deer are out on these farms and those farms, and and right. And you probably got a couple like super special deer. And so, how do you pick as the outfitter who goes to what farm? Because if you asked all fifteen guys, they'd all say, "Yeah, I want to hunt the farm with the two hundred seven on it." That that uh, that is a pretty hard question. And what's harder is to keep. It's keeping people from getting butt hurt about what what deer they're hunting. So, if let's say you came in and uh, you said, uh, you know, I've killed plenty of hundred and forty inch deer, and I only tried to get, and you only want to shoot a hundred and let's say fifty inch deer. Uh, 
well, I'm going to put you on a farm that's got uh, uh, at least, you know, 150-inch deer coming there pretty frequent. Um, now, say uh, say your buddy that come with you said, oh, I'll be tickled to death to shoot on 130, which is our minimum. Uh, I'm going to put him where there's 130-inch deer showing up just a bunch. And, I, you know, I, I'm going to put – everybody where i think they have the best chance of killing the type of deer they want to kill it, like i said as far as the great deer go it's all about who you trust to not mess it up execute the shot and uh, that's you know that that's all that's all you all you can ask for from an outfitter in my opinion okay so you you said earlier that a lot of your great deer are shot early with bows how many of them is it like 75% are in the archery season or like how many great deer are you shooting with the rifle season during the rut? Uh, let me think. Uh, we've, let me think. We've never killed a deer over 170 with a rifle. Okay. So it really is the bow and that's where I'm starting to see what you mean by a lot of shit can go wrong when you're shooting them with a stick and a string. You get adrenaline, they're close, someone's getting jacked up. Even I mean, we've seen it. The best archers in the world oh, make yeah, bad shots. But then you're yeah. like, well, shoot, that deer is wounded. It's not going to die. We're not going to find them. I mean, man, that puts you in a tough spot. Yeah. it. Uh, uh, I would rather somebody slick miss a deer as wound one. And uh, they're, I can't remember what year it was but uh, i remember one year we shot 11 deer during bow season and didn't find but one uh i watched the sun come up in the woods tracking deer more times than than i than i'd like to count that's for sure but, can you use drones in kentucky have you seen uh mike yoder's company the deer drone recovery yes and uh we've uh we've got a buddy that tracks tracks deer for us uh he's found a bunch of deer too but he uh he just hooked up with a guy uh hooked up with a guy with a drone and we actually found a deer this has been a while back um we had looked for the deer and turns out we wasn't 40 yards from the deer seven or eight times but the next the hunters had already left whatever my cousin brought his drone over and flew it over and could see it just plain as day there down there I had uh, I had Mike on from Deer Drone Recovery, and he said, if your deer died within a thousand yards of where you tell me or like where you were hunting, there's a good chance I'll find it with that drone in about five minutes. Yeah, yeah. yeah and then the so best part for like what you're doing quick. is it's zero um, pressure or intrusion on your spot because you know you you're gonna do everything you can as an outfitter to find that wounded deer for your client. But I suppose in the back of your mind, you're like, man, this ain't good to be bringing six guys and stomping through this whole farm because then I really can't put someone on this farm next hunt, you know, next camp because this farm's kind of blown out. Yeah, yeah. And the problem you run into here tracking deer is you're liable to wind up, you know, if you go sometimes just a mile, you've crossed three or four different landowners to get there. Yeah, well, that's the nice thing with the drone is you could fly it over him. Even in the middle of the night, he can he can tell you if it's the buck you shot or not. I mean, you give him a trail camera picture and say, this is the buck I shot, he can tell you in the middle of the night if it's the right buck or not with the cameras he's got on that drone. I'm sure it's the guy, because he's in Ohio, so it's not too far away from you guys. I'm sure he found someone to start uh, like a Kentucky branch of his business, and that's probably who is your that- guy's talking about. Lance Brantley of On Track to Recovery is who I'm talking about, so that that may be. Yeah, he probably same, teamed up with guy. Mike to get the same system and do the drone, because then at least you could fly it over that farmer's land, and you don't have to ask him permission unless you find it. You find it with the drone, then you go talk to the landowner and be like, "Hey, we, you know, one of my clients shot a deer. He's dead right there in your back pasture. Can I just go in quick and, and get it out? I'll, you know, I'll bring it to my farm and gut it for you, even." you know, type of thing. That way you're not like knocking on doors. Hey, can I keep blood tracking through your property or, you know, you don't want to. Yeah. And that, that's what, uh, that's what helps us is, you know, we're, there's a lot of outfitters here that are not from here, but we've lived here our whole lives and know pretty much everybody. So it's kind of one of the deals, you know, you're fixing to cross over to them and the 
tracker looks at you and say, can we go here? And I'm like, well, it's 11 o'clock at night, but I know who he is, so go ahead, you know, that type of deal. When, the, um, the, I, do, I do like the, the drone deal. That way you ain't got to take a chance on making nobody mad. Well, yeah, and it's a thermal camera with a 200X zoom. I mean, it's insane what he can do with that drone. And it doesn't scare any of the deer away because he's flying it so high, and it's got such big mm-hmm. propellers that it's not that high-pitched squeal that, like, like when you fly a little, like, DJI Maverick around, you'll scare the deer off because you can't get high enough and it's making too much noise. This thing is so high, he said, you can't hear it up there. Yeah, that 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 drone that my cousin's got, it was one of the first ones that come out, and it just, uh, as high as you could fly it, you could hear it, like you said, just bzzz, Yeah, this so. thing is like a low hum because its propellers are, like, this long. Um, gotcha. So, so you got a special deer. You know about him, right? You've been watching him all summer. You've probably been watching him for a few years by the time he gets to be special. And it doesn't sound like you have as many people in camp for the velvet season as, like, peak rifle. Mm-hmm. But say you got two, three guys, and if they're in the same group, then it's kind of easy because you could probably say, okay, you guys figure out the rotation so everyone gets a chance at this deer, you know, draw straws for whoever gets to go first or whatever. But let's say it's like three different guys that have no idea who each other are. You got one special deer, like one 207-inch deer, and all three of these guys are killers. Like you've seen their Instagram pages. They've done some stuff. You you completely trust all of them to make a good shot. Do you rotate those? Are you like out front with them and say, hey, we got one farm with the 207. We can draw straws for whoever gets to hunt it first, but then we'll rotate through so everyone gets a chance until the deer dies. Or, you know, because that's where I'm thinking fur is going to start flying in camp because everyone wants a chance at that deer. That, that is, that's, that's pretty hard. Usually we've, uh, we've got, uh, at, at least five or six special deer and, uh, you, uh, the best way to do it is if you think this guy's going to be happy with this deer, you show him a picture of it. And if he says, heck yeah, I'll shoot that deer. Then that's the deer he's going to hunt. And the, the we don't move around a whole lot on the velvet hunt. Um, it's a, it's a four evening hunt. And, uh, we just, uh, try to get in and get out without bumping any deer, but, uh, okay. Uh, so it's not like a, one night, this guy's hunting this farm. The next night you're going to go to this other farm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So the so you kind of like say you show them what you think they'd be happy with. You don't necessarily show them the entire menu. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Um. And so, have you ever had like people find out though that one guy's hunting a giant and the other guy's not, and then they start to you know like, is there any any issues in camp with with all these hunters? Because you are dealing with some dudes that. I mean, probably a little higher testosterone, a lot of ego sometimes. I mean, you know, who knows what you're going to get in camp? <laughs> I've, I've had a couple like that. But um, it it all starts from the first first conversation that, uh, that you have uh, with people on the phone when they're getting ready to book. Um, it, you know, you find out what they, what they would be happy with. And if, if you, uh, like I've had people call me and they're like, well, I, I want to kill a 170. I'm like, well, this, this ain't the place for you to come. Uh, you know, those are very few and very far in between. Um, but you just, the, like from the very first conversation you have, you, you figure out kind of what deer they want to kill. And then you also like, so our velvet hunt, it usually books out at least a year, if not two years in advance. And uh, you, if you know you've got, two or three guys that are wanting to kill a spectacular deer, then you just don't book anymore after that. You know, you, and you usually don't have to decide that yourself, but usually, you know, you'll get a group of guys that just want to kill a good velvet deer, you know, one thirty or better. And, uh, you know, you'll get a couple, two or three guys that want a great deer and that's, you know, about enough to do you. So is this full time for you is, is outfitting a full time endeavor? So, uh, I worked for the same farmer I was talking about, uh, up until, uh, last year, pretty well, pretty well, 
uh, quit there and I'd started a pressure washing, pressure washing business too. But, uh, um, yeah, yeah, this is pretty much what I do do full time. And then, so that leads me into like another topic. You just bought a waterfall business, a waterfall outfitting business. Let's talk about that for a little bit. So we were, uh, planning on buying a bear outfit in Saskatchewan and, uh, you, uh, the first one we tried to buy that ended up not working out and then talked to some other guys. And in the process of that, we found a, a set of waterfowl zones that were for sale and the guy had ran up until COVID and of course COVID screwed everybody in Canada. Up. Um, but it worked out good. The guy is actually, um, from Kentucky as well. So it made the, uh, made the, uh, uh, far as paperwork and that type of deal go pretty smooth but so we will be waterfowl outfitting uh this fall in saskatchewan oh so you're doing that in the fall as well as the whitetails yeah so yep so we'll hunt the first week of september here uh my brother will be in saskatchewan from mid-august or so and he'll run the first week uh, by itself and then as soon as our velvet hunt's over with then i'll be in saskatchewan and then so and our deer hunts we hunt hunt the first week of september velvet and then we don't hunt again until halloween so that that'll the, oh. the waterfowl uh will go good with that because we're not hunting deer that time of year anyways gotcha that's what i was curious about but if you're not hunting those weeks anyway it works out great are you doing spring waterfall in canada as well then we might we'll probably go up there next year uh just for a week or two just to uh kind of get the the spring deal figured out um our buddy up in saskatchewan he said that there was more uh outfitters up there for the spring snow goose season this year than he's ever seen um so people are always uh wanting to hunt waterfowl as much as they can and the spring just gives you some some extra time to hunt so yeah what's I, i'm sure it's a it's a completely huge endeavor to to start a new outfitting business and it's not even in the same country much less the state you grew up yeah. in and so like what's the like what's your primary like thought process on getting new clients for a business like that it so it's uh this first year is going to be going to be tough just because even though it's a uh, existing outfit that we bought out, it's you know it hasn't been ran since before till COVID, so it's basically like a startup business. Um, but this year, it's uh, going to take uh, a lot of, uh, I guess you'd say, people you know uh, bringing their buddies. So a guy that trusts you is going to get a group of his buddies together and then bring them up and then you know after after this year after we're quote unquote proven uh then uh it'll be a whole lot whole lot easier to get people to book after that because yeah so is it set up that your brother's gonna like be the lead for the waterfall outfit and you would be the lead on like the whitetail side but you both help each other out as you can or because you're gonna like someone's got to be there like full time you know it's an early season up there yeah yeah so like i said he'll go up mid-august and he'll be there the the whole time and uh uh you know i'll i'll get the velvet hunt done with and then then head up there um and then he'll probably end up staying staying longer into october and i'll go ahead and come back probably about the 15th to get our to get ready for the halloween bow hunt there and then are you going to have to do, are you, do you guys do a lot of shows? Like, would you do shows for the waterfall side well, and, and like have a booth the, and bring a cameraman out with you to, to like record and film. So you have something to show people. I, I think we've got two different uh, guys coming to Saskatchewan this year to film a show, which that'll vi- video is, is crucial for anything, but especially waterfowl. And uh, when we've, first started i think that first year i went to five or six shows and they 
weren't that successful. So the shows kind of left a bad taste in my mouth anyways. But uh, the only show that we go to now is the sportsman show in uh, Harrisburg. Yeah. Uh, and it's, 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 it's a really good show. Um, so I think we'll probably have two different booths there. And then, uh, with the waterfowl deal, I'm sure we'll go to three or four more shows anyways. Okay. When you go to these shows, especially for the whitetail, cause you've, you've been doing that. How, how do you run a booth? Cause I imagine as an outfitter, you've had a ton of great deer, but a lot of these great deer are at the client's house by now. And so you can bring pictures, and that's, like, cool, I guess. Um, but the mounts are really what catches someone's eye. But, you know, a lot of the mounts you don't have. I mean, how does that work? Do you borrow, like, do you borrow that 207 for a show? Or how does it, how do you get No, the the good thing about um, a lot of our business coming from the Northeast and we go to the Harrisburg show every year is um, usually we've got – you can only put so many deer in a booth, but usually we've got at least two deer that were either killed the year before or that year, if they get done at the taxidermist in time, that we can, you know, put two of this year's deer and two of last year's deer or something in the booth. And then the next year we just, whatever deer we killed that year or, or whatever deer hunters from around Harrisburg killed that year, we'll put them in the booth. Okay. Cause I just had, I just did a podcast for the Western rookie with uh, Cameron Monwaring from mini muleys. And um, I've done one on this podcast too with Cameron, great guy. And they started a business called mini muleys where they can take photos of your, uh, of a deer in 360 degrees. And then they can print you a little um, resin poured exact replica. So every kicker, every tine, all the colors are exactly the same. But they're like this big. It's drastically cheaper than a mount. And he said, we've been wanting to partner up with an outfitter because we think it would be super cool for outfitters that are going to shows. You Like you said, you can only fit so many full-size mounts in a booth, but you could fit 200 mm-hmm. of these things in a booth and bring every deer you've ever shot to the show. And and if, like for you, it would maybe be pretty interesting because you know your clients so well. You said that a lot of repeat business, some of you guys have been with you for 10 years, so you could probably reach out and say, hey, I want to do this. Um, can you help? Are you down with it? If you, it, Can you help and just take the pictures of the mount for me? You know, follow the instructions, take these angles and send them to me, and then I can go get the resin poured and bring, you know, bring that 207 to the show and the 177 and the 180. And all, you know, you could have like a little wall of them. And like, here's all the bucks we've ever shot. And I think it would, you know, Cameron says it. He's obviously very emotionally tied to the business. But I do believe him where he says it, like, it turns a lot of heads. Because, you know, traditional yeah, taxidermy is so common. You know, you almost get a little desensitized. something nobody's ever seen, too. So new yeah. stuff's always, always catches people's, catches people's eyes. But I've always wondered about that. Of course, getting a replica is god awful expensive but if you could take a rack and you know say it's even if it's 24 inches wide put it in a 3d printer that size and then make your replica out of your 3d printer i always thought that would be cost effective but yeah. i don't know that it could be done it's you'd probably have a hard time getting the colors right with the plastic um i don't know i mean i'm sure you could it'd take you'd have to scan it and that's what they they take the pictures you take of all the 360 and then they put it in a computer and make a 3d model and then they print it and it's like you know this big and so it's very cost effective i mean you would have to if it's a business you would really have to pencil it out and you may not i mean you've probably shot a couple hundred deer by now so it's not like you're going to get every one of them done on the first pass but you could start with like your favorite ones and your best clients that would work with you and then an outfitter could, like, every time a big deer, like a special deer gets shot in camp, you could take those pictures quick in the shop before you start skinning them. And then if you mm-hmm. decide to later to get that, he says it takes, like, I can't remember. I don't want to miss, I don't want to misquote him, but I think it was, like, a month or two to get them back. So if you shoot a deer in October, he could be ready for the Harrisburg show, where that is right. pretty uncommon for traditional taxidermy. Yeah, yeah, the, the only way to get your taxidermist to get a deer done between November and uh, February is pretty much got to 
put a pull a gun on them. They look just got to be done. Yeah, so that would be a cool option. I've been I've been thinking about for outfitters, and then it, it just so happens I had that podcast with Cameron last night, and then I'm talking to you today about doing shows and bringing deer to shows. I'm like, hey, this would be a perfect match. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's 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 the name of that? I'm gonna write that down. Mini Muleys, just M I N I. And then Muley's, I can make you, I can make an introduction for you too. Um, I have Cameron's number and I think, you know, he's been saying he's been, they, they're a Western brand, but they obviously, they've done everything across the continent. They can do any animal someone takes a picture of. And, uh, but he's been talking about trying to get into the whitetail scene a little bit more. And then like he, they said like, we've, we haven't had an outfitter take us up on it yet, but we could print every buck they've ever shot and they could bring every single deer that their camp has ever done or elk or mule deer um, to the show and like let people just walk down a, a, a wall of 200 different bucks that someone has, you know, shot. And then you don't have to bring a semi trailer to the show to show them all. Right. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. Well, that's exciting, man. Just like that, talking about big deer, we've, we've gone an hour already. Yeah. You can, hunting's the one thing you can talk about all day and never really get bored. Yeah. Are you, why don't you give before we sign off today? Give the listeners a chance to follow follow you and what you're doing, and and uh, maybe book a hunt. What's the website, the Instagram, all that stuff? Yeah, so uh, uh, our Kentucky stuff, like I said, the name is West Kentucky Buck Company. You can search that on Facebook or uh, on Instagram. It's at West Kentucky Bucks. Um, the website is uh, westkentuckybuckco.com. You can look us up on there. Uh, and uh, if you've been interested in going to Canada for waterfowl, uh, give us a shout. That's uh, Saskatchewan's guys outfitting. Um, and uh, you can look us up on Facebook or Instagram. We've not got the website complete, complete yet, but uh, there's a little section on our west kentucky buck website uh talking about the uh, saskatchewan stuff and you can also get a hold of me personally on facebook elijah stewart uh and uh, be glad to glad to talk to anybody that wants to come hunting with us so awesome and if one of our listeners is out there dreaming of being an outfitter one day can they reach out and ask you some questions for you know how would you do it in their state and wherever they're located and stuff like that for sure yeah it uh um, I've, uh, ran hunts in Texas and Oklahoma and Nebraska and, uh, it, I, I'm not going to claim to know everything or even know a lot, but I'll tell you what I know anyways. Perfect. There you go, folks. Go follow the West Kentucky Buck Company. Uh, go share their, their stuff and see all the big deer that they've seen. And if you've ever dreamed about being either a waterfowl outfitter or a, whitetail outfitter we got uh we got a person here that can maybe answer some of your questions and help you get over those first couple roadblocks all right awesome well thanks for being here elijah and thank you for listening folks